There's become such a paranoia around public conflict, particularly in higher education, that the situation is much worsened by the fear and the approach of this is going to be one big clash that is going to go everywhere on social media and the Chronicle of Higher Education will do an article on it and somebody might get fired and we'll lose applicants next year. Ian Story with us on Heterodox Out Loud. Today's episode is about how an academic theory meant to reduce perceptions of fixed group identities turned into a flashpoint in the culture wars. I'm Zach Rausch. Stay with us. Ian Story joins us. He's an associate fellow at the Hannah Arendt Center for Politics and Humanities at Bard College. We'll hear his argument that many draw false conclusions around the potential dangers of prominent progressive academic theories such as intersectionality. This episode will address how we discuss political movements, civil rights campaigns, campus shutdowns, and the debate over illiberalism. Before our interview, Ian's blog, How Critics of Intersectionality Often Miss the Point. The narrator is Jonathan Todd Ross. As identity politics has become an increasingly major flashpoint for political debate, the idea of intersectionality has come into the crosshairs of those concerned about the political meaning and place of identity. In an understatedly important piece in The Atlantic, Connor Friedersdorf suggests that intersectionality is being misleadingly lumped into an ambiguous blanket category that mashes together identity politics and certain illiberal movement tactics. Yet nothing about intersectionality makes it inherently hostile to open speech and debate. In fact, there is something profoundly ironic about claims like critic David French's that intersectionality is identity politics on steroids. Intersectionality as a concept was invented to combat the kinds of essentialisms and divisions that academics and activists worried had become entrenched in the new left of the 1970s. Intersectionality was about using empirically grounded specificities to interlink different kinds of claims about legally verifiable discriminations. And it remains an important language through which people can relate their experiences across lines that might otherwise harden into static camps. The question that critics like French should be asking is not whether intersectionality is inherently dangerous, but how it is that an academic debate about how different identity characteristics structurally intersect became tied to certain kinds of protest French and others abhor. That is a question not about intersectionality itself, but the growth of particular movement tactics. Very roughly speaking, in the study of movement politics, any given movement can be descriptively divided into three constitutive parts, its issue area, its constituency, and its tactics. Although the three are often profoundly intertwined, no individual component mandates anything in particular about the other two. The fact that certain student groups embrace certain tactics, like disrupting speakers, 
is not something inherent to the issues they take themselves to be addressing, and shouldn't be treated as such. That is ceding far too much legitimacy to the tactics themselves. I have been fortunate to have a number of colleagues at Bard College and at Harvard University who were staunch believers in the intellectual importance of intersectionality and its claims, but who were equally firm in allowing those with opposing viewpoints to fully air their arguments, if nothing else, in order to subsequently savage them. It's easy when you're looking at the ways in which complicated arguments like intersectionality get taken up by social movements to focus on the form you find the scariest. The reality is almost invariably much more complex. Indeed, any given movement can be seen operating with different tactical templates at different times for different conditions on site. There will, of course, always be relations of intimacy among the three dimensions of social movements. If the issue area is a broad understanding of the domination of a social group, that is clearly going to have the most resonance with certain people and seem to make some kinds of confrontation more appealing. However, this intuition actually doesn't go very far in explaining the way that specific movements form and evolve. Consider, for instance, the racial diversity of the American civil rights movements or the tactical plurality of contemporary global environmentalism. Coalition politics and tactical innovation are, as practical facts, much more diverse than you'd expect just from a set of basic assumptions about who movements attract and why. Mass protests are one tactical direction a movement might take. Shutdowning, or disrupting opposition speakers, another. Because of the reach and eloquence of the work of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., we have come to identify the civil rights movement of the mid-20th century with the particular tactic of nonviolence, or as King preferred, direct action, as if the two were synonymous. King, however, not only understood that the conjunction of the two was the result of deliberate tactical decision-making on the part of movement leaders, but in speeches and works like Letter from a Birmingham Jail, actively played on the possibility that the movement may take up other tactics, including violent ones, if direct action was not successful. In fact, instability in tactical choice and organizational form has been one of the hallmarks of successful American social and political movements, from the early women's suffrage movement to the opposition to the Vietnam War. Shutdowns and no-platforming are tools that have indeed been increasingly used over the last several years in student contexts, and in turn, and entirely by design, receive attention disproportionate to either their prevalence or the actual numbers behind the action. The one breeds more of the other. The more disproportionate the social media's supercharged attention given to shutdowning, the more appealing it is as a tactic. And Oscar Wilde's dictum that there is only one thing worse than being talked about and that is not being talked about can have a particularly pernicious effect in the university environment where attention can be quickly and hotly generated.
there are many complicated and interlocking reasons why the tactic of shutdowning has become all the rage in the last few years. The effect of the media landscape on how students conceive of making themselves heard, the effects of national attention on the profile of incidents, perhaps effective differences in what kinds of actions these student bodies emotionally respond to, none of which have succeeded in entirely poisoning the academic polity, but all of which are cause enough for concern in themselves without conflating the tactics chosen with the movements they represent. Still, if you are a concerned critic of the effect that shutdowning has on the carefully cultivated public of intellectual curiosity that the modern university can be, it is worth remembering that the cantankerous impulse shutdowning represents is as old as the liberal public it disrupts, and that public space has managed to thrive nonetheless. Perhaps by virtue of their political heritage from the British, whose House of Commons has long elevated it to an art form, Americans are past masters of heckling and disrupting in the most innovative of ways. A read through the transcripts of President Andrew Johnson's speaking tours is a study in the sometimes hilarious inventiveness of the American when it comes to disrupting public speech. Johnson was perpetually flustered by his hecklers, often derailing his own talk entirely to go off on tangents of invectives. But rhetorical masters, like Stephen Douglas and Lincoln himself, simply rolled with the punches and were all the more persuasive for it. The best response to the tactic may be precisely remembering that it is only a tactic, and a rather ineffectual one at the end of the day, if starved of the attention it craves. It is true that if not properly planned for, severe events like those that erupted around Charles Murray's speech at Middlebury College can get seriously and dangerously out of hand. But events of that severity, as Friedersdorf notes, are still very much a rarity, even in the present hypercharged environment. Dealing with shutdowning is a matter of planning, of defending and having faith in the resilience of the public space, and more than that, of an active and aggressive reinvesting on the part of America's academic institutions in the values of pluralism and an open speech environment conducive to multiple conflicting opinions. Jonathan Todd Ross reading Ian Story's blog, How Critics of Intersectionality Often Miss the Point. Ian joins us now. Ian, thank you so much for coming on to Heterodox Out Loud. Absolutely. Happy to. This feels like more relevant than ever. Can you, for those who don't know you, give us a little bit of context about your academic background and how you came to be interested in issues around viewpoint diversity and free speech? Yeah, so my academic background is I did my graduate work at the University of Chicago in political science and proceeded as you do to <laughs> teaching. My background is particularly in sort of the intersection of democracy and democratic theory in both systematic and philosophical ways about what makes democracy work, both normatively and practically. 
And I've also always been very heavily invested in the function of social networks. I think we're entering an age in which we're starting to grasp as a society something that's been true perhaps since the dawn of industrialized civilization or far, far before, which is the sheer power of social networks to shape not just our sort of social media sphere, but also the economy, polity, all of these kinds of questions. So that's really where I come from, and it's also where I came from when I wrote this piece. Can you talk a little bit more about what you mean by the power of social networks? Yeah, so... You know, we've been conditioned for a long time because of the legacy of large liberal political thought to think about political movements and polity and society in terms of the interaction between individuals and their government, individuals and other individuals, individuals and their employer. The sorts of work that I do and that a lot of people in my sphere do want to sort of Take a step back from that and think about the interaction between networks of people and what networks of people both represent and what they try to represent to people outside that network. For those who are not too informed about this issue, can you just describe what is intersectionality? Let's see if I can do intersectionality in 60 seconds or less. The answer is I can't. Uh, (laughs) But very broadly speaking, intersectionality is the idea that the different identities that we inhabit, that we're seen through and that we see ourselves through, interact in complicated ways that aren't just kind of I'm one thing or another. And that's, that's what I mean when I say it is in its most deep form designed to challenge essentialisms. You know, in the early work, this was largely the province of Black feminists or female Black legal thinkers who were saying that being Black and being a woman is not the same thing as a legal encounter as being either Black or a woman. I think that there's an assumption among critics of intersectionality that what intersectionality means is just sort of stacking up your little Jenga blocks of oppression and whoever has the highest tower wins. That's not at all what this has ever meant. It's a very complicated system and it's a system that changes as societal views on different kinds of identity positions change. So it could very well be that you have one position that is viewed strongly negatively in a social context, and you have another position that's filmed, viewed quite positively in a social context. And the intersection of those two positions is going to be very different than someone else. Where is the, and what is the relationship between intersectionality and then now what's known as critical race theory? In part, I'm going to disappoint you because despite having studied under one of the great critical race theorists, I have no idea what people are talking about now when they talk about critical race theory. It doesn't bury, bear any particular image to me other than as far as I can read it, things that talk about race. <laughs> to that question, I'm afraid it, it doesn't have very much of an answer. 
certainly in their genesis, critical race theory and intersectionality, you know, were not perfectly parallel. There were certainly debates, but there were really strong consonances between their intuitions and the twin intuitions, which was largely coming out of the racial and particularly the sexuality politics of the 1980s, was that the way that we reduce individuals to singular markers and markers that are highly fluid, the history of whiteness in the 20th century there at the beginning of the 20th century, I wouldn't have been classified as white. Now, literally no one would question it. So both of these programs began with the intuition that we need more complicated languages to talk about people's identities and to talk about how we get to the identities we have and what we think those are. So I want to transition a little bit away from the theoretical aspect of these concepts, because in the blog, you talked about the importance of breaking down political movements into its issue area, which is what we've been talking about, the constituency, and then the tactics. And just to start with this, why do you think it's value to break things up in this way? I think it's valuable for a couple of reasons. First, because the way that we tend to talk about identitarian politics end up leaving a lot of the things that really make a difference to people on a personal level in their everyday lives out by making it merely an interaction between a category they belong to and an issue. For me, that sounds theoretical, but it's, it's a very practical question. And if you want to deal with a lot of the alienation of a lot of people of all kinds of stripes from a lot of that has to do with whether or not someone can see all the pieces of themselves that are critical to who they are reflected in the position they're assumed to be taking. The other piece is that, you know, I take very seriously the idea that Ours is a democratic republic, and it's incredibly important to our system of government that we are able to allow people to represent themselves as they represent themselves to themselves in the political sphere and not reduce them to boxes and give them the flexibility to take the positions that feel right to them as opposed to the positions they feel like they're supposed to take because of who they are to other people. One of the points towards the end of your blog that you seem to be making is that the best approach to dealing with tactics that you tend to not like, um, especially those in, in this context was about shout-downs or disinvitations, is not to magnify those stories. And it almost it seemed like you were saying ignoring them to a certain degree seems like the best approach. Is that correct? Yeah, well, I, I wouldn't say ignoring them uh, is the first caveat that I would make. It is true that I think that when it comes to particularly student protests on campus, a lot of the confrontation and conflagration between student bodies and members of the faculty or the administration or things like that is radically worsened by the assumption that 
what needs to happen is some kind of zero-sum confrontation over what's going on. That we have to have some kind of absolutist position. We will defend all speakers. We will defend no speakers. The students win. The students lose. I think quite to the contrary of ignoring them, in the universities and colleges that I've seen successfully deal with serious student protests, and I do say serious because I, there are many cases in which I, most of my sympathies lie with the protesters, is exactly that, taking the issue seriously, engaging with the students, putting together coalitions of students and faculty administrators that can have serious conversations and public conversations about decisions that were made in places where it's appropriate to change those decisions, humbly changing those decisions, and in places where it's not appropriate to change those decisions, engaging in a dialogical process that doesn't feel like a confrontation between students and others, but a sort of good faith collective attempt to build the university as the scene that all the stakeholders want it to be. And of course, there's going to be conflict there. But I think that there, there's become such a paranoia around public conflict, particularly in higher education, that the situation is much worsened by the fear of this is going to be one big clash that is going to go everywhere on social media and the Chronicle of Higher Education will do an article on it and somebody might get fired and we'll lose applicants next year. A healthy polity is one in which disagreement is welcomed and converted into a setting in which the stakeholders can come to a better understanding of what's going on. What really is your bottom line here that you want to make sure that our listeners take away from what you've been saying and also from your blog? The first is every kind of potentially tense, potentially conflictual social interaction in an environment like a university where things are so intimate, they're so tight and personal, can only be made better if we avoid assuming that what we're dealing with is a kind of Gramscian war of attrition between two blocks of people who are unitary and want the same things all the time. The second thing that I would say that I really want to emphasize, particularly for heterodoxes, readers and participants, is not to collapse together the particular tactics that any given student movement or faculty movement, for that matter, we've seen some very interesting faculty organization over the last couple of years, not to collapse together the tactics they're choosing with those other two very important dimensions, which is the coalition they represent, the community they represent, and the issues that they're trying to address. Because a lot of times, if you want to de-escalate a situation from one that's being really destructive to your community, some of the best ways to do that are by engaging those other two dimensions, the community and the issues, 
while addressing the particular tactic differently. You might simply say, we're not going to deal with this tactic. We're not going to deal with refusing speakers. We're not going to accept the removal of professors. We're not going to accept the removal of students from campuses. But that's not the same thing as saying, we're not hearing you on this issue. We're not seeing the concerns you're trying to represent to us. And we not only are willing to, we are eager to engage you on those things. Thank you so much, Ian. I really appreciate your time. Ian's story on Heterodox Out Loud. Stay up to date with Heterodox Academy's many offerings, essays, resources, research, and events. You can find them all at our website. Subscribe and download Heterodox Out Loud on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Davies Content produced this show. I'm Zach Rausch. Until next time.